As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns, taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder 200,150 people, both great and small, male and female, along with great numbers of animals, including horses and mules and donkeys. And as for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem and then constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. These are the ominous words of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, king of the world, king of Babylon. In the time of Hezekiah, we read about this in the Bible, but this quote is actually from one of the most remarkable discoveries in archaeology of Assyria, the prism of Sennacherib, talking about his conquest of Jerusalem. And so as you may have gathered, we're starting a new series, uh, four episodes on the great empires of the ancient world. And today we're starting with Assyria, the first great empire in history, and one that intersects with the Bible at many, many different places. It is. You know, one of the things that surprised me, I think as uh, Bible students, we know about what's called the Neo-Assyrian Empire, where it intersects heavily with Hezekiah through the reign of the divided kingdom. But it really goes back much, much further than that. And I would guess, I would say that the Assyrian Empire had three major times of ascendancy. And the founding of the essential cities and the towns of Asher and Nineveh back into the third millennium BC. Well, I think one of my hopes, this has certainly been true for me, and I know for you as we've talked about the research on these great empires, there is so much background to these biblical stories. When you start to study what we know about Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, you start to read these stories in a new light. So what we're going to try to do is tell the stories of these empires, but also show the ways that the real history of these empires comes into the biblical story. And more often than not, what you're going to realize first off is, whoa, the Bible has a lot to say here that's important to historians, whether or not you're a Christian. Right. But then in addition, there's so much more to what God was doing in these stories in the backdrop of history, in the backdrop of these empires, than when you just read it at first glance. So to go back into the history of Assyria, you have to go back to the very cradle of civilization. So we think about the Fertile Crescent, probably you remember back in school or Western civilization, you talk about humanity emerges, you know, kind of in this Fertile Crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates, near what we would consider today the Persian Gulf. And you have the most ancient empire cities, the city of Uruk, for example, 4000 BC is a thriving city. It's where Gilgamesh is king over that city in the ancient epic of Gilgamesh, where the cuneiform alphabet, you know, proto-alphabet was was invented. This is the beginning of the Bronze Age. People are starting to use tools. You have the agricultural revolution where people can make surplus and they're able to provide food for more than just their family. You have all these changes taking place. And in this same area, you've got Babylon. You have Tower of Babel, which we'll get to in Genesis chapter 11. You have the city of Nineveh, one of the oldest cities in the world, inhabited back to 6000 BC, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um right across the Tigris from modern-day Mosul. So all these cities actually were in the news just not too long ago because ISIS was destroying a lot of the ruins from these ancient empires. So it's still a battleground today. It's still a highly trafficked, very pivotal part of the world 
think modern day Iran, Iraq, think uh, edges of Saudi Arabia, think right. Israel, Jordan, Syria, all these places right next to each other have basically had empires and warring peoples for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And the Bible starts to speak to this in a way that's actually not different from the way most history textbooks would talk about it. The Bible also talks about life starting in big cities in Genesis chapter 10, post-flood mm -hmm. on the plains of Shinar, or you might say the plains of Sumer. Think of the Sumerians. This is the area right by the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's also the area where the Garden of Eden is described. So this mm -hmm. cradle of civilization is where you get the first big empire, starting with a guy inconveniently named Nimrod. So in Genesis chapter 10, you get Nimrod. He's building the city of Babel. He's building the city of Nineveh, several of these uh, cities that you read about in ancient literature. And one of these is uh, Asher. So you might make the connection between Asher and Assyria. It's the same word that's been right. compounded. And it comes from this little kind of inconspicuous village on the Tigris, where there's a seat of a certain goddess named Asher. There's a shrine of the goddess Asher and a group of people that start to worship Asher. And going all the way back to mid-24th century BC in the ancient Akkadian Empire, you have mm -hmm. Sargon of Akkad, who's one of the first great kings, who uh, reigns over an area roughly around the area of Nineveh, goes into the area of Asher, and they are worshiping this goddess among others in this very place. Well, as the civilization begins to grow, there's a king in Asher who's named Asher Ubalat I, and he lives in 1363 to 1328. And he is the one that finally liberates the city of Asher. He establishes a regional kingship, and he has probably the first claim, we would say, to an early Assyrian empire, a regional hegemony over the other cities and places in the area. And what emerges early, early on in Assyria that's important to understanding both that empire and the way the Bible talks about Assyria is that in this era, in the mid-second millennium BC, you have a link between the peoples in the area of Asher and Nineveh and the peoples in the area of Babylon. And from that time on, Assyria and Babylon are linked. Assyria takes over that area, and they have a king of Babylon. Babylon takes over that area, and they have uh, usually some important official in the city of Nineveh. And right. these two neighbor kingdoms uh, are fighting against each other or ruling over one another for literally the next thousand years until the fall of Babylon. It's so much so that actually the Greeks considered that these were the same empire. So Herodotus writing after the fall of the Babylonian empire considered that Babylon was just the last capital of Assyria, that th right. this was really the same mega empire. But these two are linked and they have different gods. They have the goddess Asher, they have Marduk, and they will rewrite each other's mythology with their gods in the prime sea. That's how close these empires were together. But it really isn't until later that we get the Assyrian Empire that we're aware of. And actually, one of the things uh, 
that we need to know right off the bat is a biblical reference to Assyria that get, paints a picture of Assyria that's on the rise in a very famous book of the Bible that you might not have connected with Assyria, the book of Jonah. Exactly. Uh, as you come out of uh, the time period uh, in the 1300s and the 1200s, you, you see Assyria and Babylon, as you said, kind of rivals for ascendancy. And then there is a, a large collapse in civilization at that period of time, the late Bronze Age collapse. And, and, and basically civilization kind of gets a knockdown blow a little bit. But when that clears up and you get into the time period that we think of as the Bible, think King David in the 10th century, 900s or so, this is also, as David is coming up, in Israel, David and Solomon, in the north, the Assyrians emerge as dominant, and they're dominating the Babylonians, and they begin to form what we would think of as an empire, not just a regional kingship, but they they dominate the Babylonians, then further east into what's modern-day Iran. They dominate the Medes, who were living there at that time. They go west into what's now Turkey. They go south, of course, through uh Later, after the time of David, they're going to move south and clash with Egypt. And so they become an empire through this time period, and they emerge as the ascendant empire from probably the 10th century in the 900s BC, all the way down until uh, about 609. So for about 300 years, they're pretty dominant. They're clashing with Egypt, and they're having a lot of battles with uh, with their subservient people, but they are really an empire at that time, and they are the most powerful people around. So the Bible enters this story, and Jonah, we're looking now in the 8th uh, century. So the early part of the 8th century, think 750 to 780, you have the Assyrians are dominating people, and the book of Jonah is God entering into this story and sending Jonah to the Assyrians to say, you need to repent and acknowledge me. You are the great kingdom, uh, the great empire of the world, but you need to acknowledge that I am the great God. And that gives rise to the book of Jonah. And when you understand how brutal Assyria was and how dominant they were, it helps me understand a little bit why Jonah had no sympathy for the Assyrians. Well, not only were the Assyrians worshiping foreign gods, and part of the worship of these foreign gods was particularly brutal, highly sexualized. You know, you have to think back to these ancient empires, government, religion, and culture were all mm -hmm. wrapped up into one. And so it wasn't just a, do you go to a different church, you know, but you basically have a life like everyone else. To enter into Assyrian culture was a whole package deal. To participate in the culture was to participate in the religion, was to participate in the government. And so when Jonah goes to Nineveh, he he's not just going like to evangelize and everything else is basically the same. Right. He's going into a culture that is radically different. Everything they believe is different in a lot of ways than the Hebrews. And uh, as we'll see kind of in the in the later kings in the height of the Assyrian Empire, it is insanely brutal. This 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 empire is one of the most 
gory in history. And Jonah right. would have known that. And, and that's why Nineveh is, is thought of as an evil city. It's a great city. It's probably one of the most populous cities at this time in the world, but it is also a terrible and evil city. And so there are biblical parallels, uh, imagery that's used of Nineveh. That's the same as the images of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. It is a hostile place to people who are doing God's will. It is an evil place. It's a brutal place. And so, of course, Jonah doesn't want to go. The, you know, the second reason would be the Assyrians are enemies of the people of Israel. So Jonah's right. Jonah's prophesying during the time of Jeroboam II. This is after the split in the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom is neighbors with Assyria. And of course, we're going to see the northern kingdom conquered by Assyria. But right. even now, they're getting pressure to essentially become a vassal kingdom of Assyria. So kind of that pay us tribute or we will conquer you, which right. ends up they do come and conquer uh, the Northern Kingdom pretty shortly after uh, Jonah is there. But what happens in the book of Jonah, and, and we've recorded this in our Bible overview uh, of Jonah, is that God shows a glimpse of his plan for all of humanity. Even the, the evil great empire of the world, God wants mm -hmm. his people, this little insignificant group of people compared to Assyria, to be the group that blesses the nations in the promise to Abraham. And so uh, you get the end of Jonah, you get this, this great line at the end. And the Lord said, you pity the plant, you know, when he strikes down the plant that you did not labor for, you didn't make it grow. Uh, you, it came into being in one night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. What's this is an interesting little biblical factoid here. The book of Jonah and the book of Nahum are two books that are about Nineveh. They're actually the only two books that are right. exclusively about Nineveh. And they're the only two books of the Bible that end with a question. Both of them addressing Nineveh or addressing Jonah about Nineveh end with a question. They're both about this great evil city of Nineveh. You know, I really can understand uh, Jonah. He, he basically is being asked by God. And here's a picture of the gospel. We just don't realize it until you look backwards at it. But he's being asked to go to their enemies and offer them mercy from God if they will repent. And so Jonah's objection is off, it's the same as ours a lot of times. And that is, why would we want to show mercy to people who have never shown mercy themselves? Jonah's attitude was, I'm going to sit here until you destroy them because that's what they deserve. And so you, you'd get this little glimpse of, of the gospel ahead of time is that God's mercy extends even to those who don't deserve mercy. And surprisingly enough, in that period, one of the kings anyway, repents and offers, uh, for whatever reason, uh, he repents and offers his prayers to the God of the Hebrews. And of course, the next king, it seems like reverted back uh, to his ways, but it's a surprising story, and it's I think it's an optimistic story forecasting the gospel that even people you think could not possibly repent can repent. There's a beautiful little story there for us. We don't know who the king is in the book of Jonah, but shortly after Jonah would have been there, a king arises named Tiglath-Pileser III, and there's, mm -hmm. there's, there's several Tiglath-Pilesers. That was a common name. It was the Michael of the Assyrian Empire. Very popular. And uh, he reigns from 744 to 727. And this is where you see the temperature start to come up against the kingdom of Israel in the north. He's followed by Shalmaneser V, 
who reigns from 726 to 722. And this is when you start to get battles in the northern kingdom of Israel, right. uh, all leading up to one of the most famous kings of Assyria in the beginning of four kings that we're going to spend our time talking about, the four great kings of Assyria, Sargon II, who rules from 721 to 705. And Sargon is an interesting king. He is probably the one that takes Assyria from a regional empire to right. a world empire. He's uh, largely responsible for building some of the big palaces and artifacts and reliefs that you think of in the Assyrian Empire. So mm -hmm. Sargon, his son Sennacherib, then his son Esarhaddon, and then Ashurbanipal, these four kings, if you go to the British Museum and you look at the Assyria reliefs, most yes. of them are from this period. You have some that are from Ashurnazirpal, who's about 100 years before this, but most of them are from these four kings. They're from Nimrud, they're from Nineveh. They had turned Assyria into a world empire. And one of the things that is so distinctive about the Assyrians is their trash talk. There yes. have never been kings in the history of the world who trash talk quite as hard as the Assyrian kings. And so if you get Sargon, for example, and you go and see the ruins from his palace at what's at a town called Korsabad, he has these carved stone, uh, we, we call them like etchings on his walls of his conquests, of his hunts, of the kings that he's killed, of his titles. I mean, these guys knew how to do titles. It would be something like yeah. Sargon, king of the universe, grand king of the world, <laughs> king of Assyria, king of Babylon, never defeated in battle. And that's how he wants to be addressed. Right. And uh, so you see this massive imposition of their power into nature and into the surrounding areas. And one of their signs, so the, the palace entrances in Korsabad, which was where Sargon's palace was, are these huge winged bulls with human heads. And in fact, when uh, Henry Layard excavated Nineveh in the 1840s and 50s, one of the first thing they found were these winged bulls that guarded the entrance of the palace in Nineveh, which would have been during Sennacherib's time. And right. these bulls, they're in the British Museum now, they weigh 50 tons. These are huge, massive statues to the power of Assyria and to, the, and, and to guard their palace. Yeah, it is amazing. They, their social media was A1. I mean, like you said, their trash talk, they advertised, if you will, with in several forms. One was if you were a vassal king and you came to pay tribute into the palace of Sargon or his son Sennacherib or his son Esarhaddon, you would walk through all of these pictures and all of these accounts of how dominant he was. It was intended to intimidate their enemies and to tell them, you can't possibly stand up against this. But they also, Cole, uh, as you know, put up uh, stones in other places. One of the famous ones is a small, it's a prism. It's basically a multi-sided structure on which Sennacherib wrote all kinds of conquests that he did. And they would put these out through the empire. So they really were good at PR. And they they realized that you could win a lot of battles without fighting if you could intimidate your enemies. 
And Cole, right. I think that's one of the reasons they were so brutal is their their reputation, a deserved reputation for brutality was something that made anybody think twice. Because if you didn't succeed in beating them, you knew what you were in for and it wasn't going to be pleasant. Right. This was a common tactic in the ancient world and the Assyrians certainly mastered this. The, the interesting thing that happens in the reign of Sargon II is they have a major PR disaster. So he's right. been conquering, he's been expanding the empire, and all of a sudden you have something that radically changes the history of the Assyrian Empire. Sargon and his army are out conquering, they're raiding, they're bringing in tribute for the kingdom. And we're not clear exactly what happened for reasons I'll, I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. But somehow their headquarters is raided in the middle of the night. And Sargon is killed and his body is taken by this foreign army and never recovered. Well, this is a big deal for the Assyrians. They have a well-developed view of the afterlife. They believe that the king is a demigod. And so once the king dies in the afterlife, the king is like a god. But he has to receive a proper burial. So right. what happens is because the king was killed, because his body was never buried, he wasn't able to get the rituals of death that they ascribed for all the kings of Assyria. He was relegated to wandering aimlessly in the afterlife. This was essentially for them, this was a sign that something was wrong with the gods and the Assyrian empire. They were being judged. They were being forsaken. They were... Uh, in some ways had violated the honor of the gods. And so Sennacherib, who takes over after Sargon, his father has been killed, is very superstitious and wary yes. about what happened to his father. So much so that uh, because of what's happened, Sennacherib changes their entire foreign policy, basically, around avenging his father's death and right. minimizing things that they may have done to set the gods off. So, for example, they believed that the gods of Babylon were real gods. They just weren't quite as important as the Assyrian gods. Right. And one of the things that Sennacherib wondered was, maybe we have uh, upset the Babylonian gods because of the way that we have conquered Babylon. And so Sennacherib actually has a very anti-Babylonian policy. He ends up leveling Babylon, Babylon to the ground, and it mm -hmm. has to be rebuilt later uh, by his grandson. But it changes everything about Sennacherib. He strikes all the mentions of Sargon. He doesn't have anything written in the official records about how he died. He doesn't have anything referring to him. In fact, there's nothing from the time of Sennacherib that mentions his father. He can just tell you right. how seismic this was uh, in the way that he reacted to his father's death. Yes, this was a big deal because, you know, they believed that anybody without a burial would come back and haunt their family and where they were from. Well, you can imagine how bad that would be for a king and a demigod and his power. And in fact, Sennacherib, it, Sargon had built a beautiful new palace and Sennacherib never set foot in it, never lived in it. He built one somewhere else because his concern was that his father's spirit would come back and haunt that that palace of his, that he'd hang around there and imagine how much a spirit like that, how much damage it could do. So you're right. Uh, Sennacherib was, was really concerned and he knew something. There was a great disturbance in the force, if you will, <laughs> that something has gone really wrong. But not only Sennacherib, 
the whole world knows this. Uh, it, the word gets around, and so people are talking, and other kingdoms know, and they go, something, the gods are, for some reason, have cursed Sargon, and what is that going to mean for Sennacherib? And there's an interesting uh, potential reference in the Bible about this uh, mysterious disappearance of Sargon. So Isaiah is one of the major players during the Assyrian period, and we're going to get to the story about Isaiah and the Assyrians that's most famous during the time of Hezekiah. Uh -huh. But before this, Isaiah is prophesying about the kingdoms of the world. And in chapter 14, he is talking about the king of Babylon. Now, at this point, you've got to remember the Assyrians have conquered Babylon. And so right. one of Sargon's titles is also king of Babylon. Right. And so in this, in this prophecy, Isaiah begins to commentate about what's happened to the king of Babylon. And, and knowing what we know now about Sargon, listen to what he says. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the hosts of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. Now, most people, when you first read this, think that this is talking about Satan because it says... Mm -hmm. Uh, the day star, son of dawn. And it's possible that it's talking about both. You know, the Bible does right. this a lot, right. where you have a human event or figure that's talking about something more cosmic or more consequential down the road. But what makes us think that this is about Sargon is what he says next. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave, loathed like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. So th this is Isaiah talking about what's happened with Sargon. He's not right. been buried. He isn't joined with his people. It's a taunt. Even the section heading in the, here in the ESV says that they are taunting Babylon. What Isaiah is doing is he's looking at this misfortune that's happened, and he's bringing a perspective of Israel onto the situation. I mean, this was such a global event and shocker that even the prophets of Israel are talking about what's happened with Sargon. Yeah, and think. remember the chronology that we just talked about. So you have Jonah... God sends Jonah to the Assyrian kings, think 750 to 780 BC, and says, you think you are kings of the universe. In fact, your title is king of the universe. I'm the king of the universe. You need to repent. Well, you know the story of Jonah. One of the kings does. But afterwards, by the time of 730, 20, 30 years later, you get Sargon II. And of course, he's billing himself as king of the universe and most high and has no regard whatsoever for Yahweh. And so, whereas the world is looking and thinking, I don't know what happened to Sargon, but that's really bad luck. Maybe some God is upset with him. Well, think about this. Here's Isaiah in the putting word, you know, here's God saying through Isaiah, he said, I'll tell you exactly who judged you. 
and I'll tell you exactly why you're wandering and never been buried is because your predecessor repented, but you didn't repent. And consequently, it's Yahweh judging you. So if you just think about the chronology between Jonah and Isaiah, we don't usually make that connection. But the Assyrian, uh, what Isaiah is saying is that God has judged the Assyrian king, Sargon. And, uh, and I don't know if it's so much a taunt, and it's simply a pronouncement of judgment. And it's an explanation to say, if everybody wants to know what happened with Sargon, I'll tell you. Yahweh gave them a chance to repent. They didn't. This is a judgment from Israel's God. So it's a bold pronouncement by Isaiah. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the claim that it's not the Babylonian gods that you've angered. You've set yourself up against the Most High God is yes. the way the prophets always speak, actually, whether it's to Israel or to the nations. Right. They bring the perspective of God back into the conversation. And this time against a great misfortune that happened in Assyria, now, Sargon's son that we mentioned, Sennacherib, is probably the most famous king of Assyria during this period. He right. is the one that is in the Bible the most because he is the one who finishes the job of conquering the northern kingdom. And in the quote that I read from the prism of Sennacherib at the beginning of the episode, he conquers dozens of cities in the north. And he finally comes around and he besieges the city of Jerusalem itself. And this is the scene that we get in 2 Kings chapter 17 through 19, where he sends his advisors, the Rob Shaka and the Rob Saras, who come to the walls of Jerusalem, and they begin to taunt Jerusalem about what they've done across the entire world. I mean, the speech that the Rob Shaka gives is just an amazing uh, expose into the mentality of the Assyrians. You know, he he's talking about we have conquered every city, every god. How could you mm -hmm. believe that you are unique? How do you think that you're going to stand up against the war machine of Assyria when none of the other empires of the world have been able to stand up against us? Exactly. And, you know, that rings so historically true. If you read the inscriptions that you were talking about in the palace of Sennacherib back in Nineveh, and then you listen to that speech that speech is exactly what they said, is that you're, we, have, we have beaten better gods than your God. Mm -hmm. And those gods weren't real. Our God, Asher, is real. You better give up or else. This time, however, uh, they're playing with fire. We, we realize that Sargon, uh, Isaiah says, Sargon was judged by Yahweh. And here you are trash-talking Yahweh. And his son Sennacherib doesn't fare any better. So here's the words uh, after the Rabshaka talks to Hezekiah. Hezekiah turns to God. Unlike the northern kingdom, he says, God, we're doomed without your help. And so Isaiah comes back, and in chapter 19, he says, thus says the Lord to you. And here's the tail end of what God says. He says, speaking to Sennacherib, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook into your nose and my bit into your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way that you came. Meaning, I've, I'll just tell you what's going to happen. You're not going to conquer Jerusalem. I'm going to send you running for home back the way that you came. And of course, we know the rest of the story 
It said that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when they awoke, behold, there were all the dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. But he doesn't have a happy ending either, Cole, because when he gets back to Nineveh and he is worshiping in the temple of one of his gods, a couple of his kids, according to the Bible, kill him. And that meshes, by the way, with the historical record, is that there was a coup against Sennacherib, and some of his kids, his sons, were involved with it, and he is killed in a coup. So first Sargon, with his mysterious death, and then Sennacherib. And so the house of, of the Assyrian kings really seems cursed at this point in time. There are some amazing faith lessons there, um, in the stories of these Assyrian kings. I mean, as you mentioned in those reliefs, one of the things they're showing is what they've done to these other empires. And you can see a relief of them taking Jews from the Northern Kingdom and mm -hmm. bringing them to Nineveh or into their capital city. And one of the things that they do is they put hooks in their noses and through their arms, yes. and they march them in a line all the way from their homeland back to Assyria. And so you see the prophets flipping this. God tells Isaiah to flip this on his head. It's actually Sennacherib who's going to have a hook in his nose, and he's going to be marched back to uh, where he's going. Now, the other, the other flip that takes place is, you know, the Rabshakeh, his essential challenge to the people of Israel, like you said, is our God is greater than your God. Our God is going to deliver Jerusalem into you, our hands. Well, it turns out that he doesn't. But the flip part of it is when he gets back, it says in the Bible, he's worshiping in the house of Nisroch, who is his God that he's worshiping in Nineveh. And that's when he's killed. It's almost it's almost like whose God isn't able to protect them now. Right. This is a right. judgment on those who would raise them up against God. He's killed in the very temple of the God that he worships by right. his sons who are rebelling. Um, so Sennacherib also meets a pretty grim end. And his son, Esarhaddon, is, in terms of the empire, the greatest king of Assyria. Sennacherib is probably the greatest conqueror. The mm -hmm. kingdom is its biggest under Esarhaddon. I mean, it is a massive, massive empire. It covers the entire Middle East, over into Turkey, almost all the way down to Egypt, across modern-day Iran. It's a very big swath of the world. And yet, from the time Esarhaddon is crowned king, it will only be... 50 years until Assyria starts to crumble. And the, the downfall of Assyria is actually a very interesting story, and it blends with the uh, episode we're going to do on Babylon. What happens is Esarhaddon reigns relatively unchallenged, but he's a relatively ineffective king. And so he has the makings of some strong powers around him, namely Babylon and the Medes to the east. His son, Ashurbanipal, is a kind of the humanist, enlightened emperor of the Assyrian Empire. He's known right. mostly for his great library, the, the library of Ashurbanipal, most of which is now in the British Museum, right. occupied a giant space in the palaces of Nineveh. And it's the first ancient library that we have a record of with thousands and thousands of clay tablets. And this is where we get things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, 
We have some uh, descriptions of life there. We have some of their literature. We have some of their religious texts. We have the annals of the kings of Assyria. They have right. a king list that stretches back even from this point over a thousand years of the chronicles of what these kings have done. So this mm -hmm. massive library, arts, gardens, architecture, this is really the cultural peak of Assyria. And in fact, in the North Palace of Nineveh, during the time of Ashurbanipal, you have these reliefs of the lion hunts that he would go on. And you have pictures of him throwing his spear at lions, killing them with a sword. And it presents a macho picture of him as a king, dominating over nature, dominating over lions, and ruling with an iron fist. Well, as Ashurbanipal when he dies, there's a succession crisis in the empire between his sons. And not just in Nineveh, but interestingly enough, in the city of Babylon as well. So there's a family who are uh, in the city of Uruk, probably the governor of Uruk, who decide to rebel. They're Babylonians. They decide to rebel against Assyria. And this rebellion is put down at first. And the, the person who leads the rebellion is killed, but his son, whose name is Nabopolassar, is a great military leader, rallies an army, and decides that he's going to avenge his father's death and take back the city of Babylon for the Babylonian Empire and for the people. So what happens is he <clears throat> leads an army, he throws off the Assyrian rule in Babylon, he declares himself the king of Babylon. And then with, uh, with the Medes, who are also fighting against Assyria, they lay siege to Nineveh, they conquer the capital, and they send the Assyrian king on the run. And so the Assyrians at that point, to continue your story, realize we could have potentially handled the Babylonians. They've rebelled many times, but now they've got these reinforcements, these Iranians, is what we would call the Medes today, ethnically. They have the Medes coming in to join them. And so the king of Assyria reaches out to the Pharaoh of Egypt and says, look, we've got a long trade relationship. Uh, you know, we've, we've traded with each other. We battled some, but let's face it. We each have our spheres of influence. And all that's going to be upset because you got these young upstart Babylonians and the Medes, and they're not going to honor our trade agreements. And they're going to be as much a threat to you as they are to me. Once, if they conquer the Assyrians, trust me, they're coming after you. So he sends to Pharaoh Necho in Egypt and says, Would you come help me against the Babylonians and the Medes? And that brings us back into the biblical story. The king in Judah at this time is named Josiah. You'll, you'll remember Josiah as a reformer king. He's the one whose officials find the book of Deuteronomy in the temple. They reinstate the Passover. He is tearing down the altars. He is bringing people back to the worship of Yahweh. And right. Josiah is a very young king. And so one of the things that he does is he goes out to stop Pharaoh Necho from uniting with the Assyrian army as they cross through uh, the area of the kingdom of Judah. And they meet for battle in the valley of Megiddo. Now, Megiddo, if you remember from our Revelation series, it has a mountain. And the word for mountain in Hebrew is Har. So you have Har Megiddo, Armageddon. This is truly the first battle of Armageddon. Right. And the Bible actually 
doesn't tell us exactly why Josiah wants to go out and battle against Pharaoh Necho to keep him from from, uh, rejoining with the Assyrians. But the picture we get from the Bible and from other sources is, at this point, Josiah believes it's in the best interest of Israel to not have a resurgent Assyrian empire. So what they're doing is they're throwing in their weight, not necessarily with the Babylonians, but against the Assyrian Empire, trying to cut off the reinforcements. Well, they meet for battle in the Valley of Megiddo, and Josiah is killed in the battle. And so this biblical story, again, intersects with the history of Assyria, that in the crumbling last decade of the Assyrian Empire, when the Egyptians are coming to their aid, you have the death of Josiah, you have the reversal of the reforms that he has been working for, the death of the dream that he had had to bring Israel back to prominence. And as we'll get into in our next episode, you have the beginning of the end for Jerusalem and the the kingdom of Judah as the Babylonians reconquer the kingdom of Assyria. They do. They, They bring about with the Medes the demise of Assyria. In 614, they conquer Asher. In 612, Nineveh falls, uh, and then in 605, Pharaoh Necho comes and joins the Assyrians, but the Babylonians and Medes are able to defeat them, and Pharaoh Necho has to retreat back to Egypt, and the Assyrians have fallen. And yet again, the Bible speaks here. One of the minor prophets, Nahum, pronounces the uh, God's judgment on Assyria. And I I would say it's, again, another oracle against Assyria and its downfall. And again, ascribing that, just like all the prophets had, that you think that the goddess Asher controls your destiny. It's actually Yahweh that controls your destiny. And so, for example, uh, Nahum says, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters have, have run dry. Halt, they cry, but none turns back. You plunder, they will plunder your silver, they'll plunder your gold. There's no end of the treasure that they will take. And a couple verses later in chapter two, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Kind of tapping into what you were saying is that that Asher was often, you know, the idea of the lions and the Assyrian kings conquering the lions. They're stronger than the king of the beasts, if you will. And so here comes Nahum taunting them, saying, where are your strong lions now? And so uh, just as Jonah was sent 150 years earlier to tell them to repent, here is Nahum at the ending of Assyria saying, your judgment has befallen you because you failed to acknowledge the true king of the universe. I think it's hugely illuminating to read a book like Nahum, which, you know, it, it's a short book, but it's obscure. It's hard to make make sense of what's going on. And to get this backdrop of the reliefs of the lion hunts that Ashurbanipal right. went on, and to have him point directly to that and say, where are the lions now? And of course, you have the relief between the lions that he was hunting and the lion of Judah, which was a symbol in Israel and in Judah at this point of the coming Messiah. Nahum was playing on real life circumstances. You know, it'd be be like somebody now 
talking about the United States and mentioning, you know, the eagle is no longer flying or something like mm-hmm. that to to take up against. Well, everybody would know what they were talking about. Right. That's how it was with Nahum. When he talks about the lions, they would have known that's a symbol of the kings of Assyria. That's one of the ways that they prided themselves on their dominion and their power. You know, the one of the takeaways that I have from the Assyrian Empire is the problem of hubris. And as is the case with almost all of these empires that we're going to cover in this in this series of podcasts, you see these kings begin to overreach. You see them set themselves up against right. God, against the rest of the world. You see themselves proclaim themselves to be God. And this hubris is always met with nemesis. Now, this is something that the Greeks observed about these ancient empires and about these kings. Nemesis is the goddess who punishes hubris against the gods. And so you have this cycle of hubris, pride, leads to the fall, nemesis. Right. And so the great Greek myth about this is Narcissus, who spurns the love of some of the other goddesses, and the goddess Nemesis lures Narcissus to a reflecting pool where he falls in love with his own image and essentially can't pull himself away and ends up dying there and freezing in place. And so it's a story about pride and narcissism and self-absorption that leads to a fall. And certainly this is the case with the Assyrians. The gates of Nineveh, for example, were the largest gates in the world. They were ornate and wonderful giant stone gates covered with art. And uh, Eckhart Fromm in his great book on Assyria points out the irony of this. These gates are are built maybe a hundred years before the fall of Nineveh. And he says, even in their wildest dreams, they would never have imagined that the generous proportions of the entranceways might one day prove a strategic liability. But now in the heat of the summer of 612 BCE, they turned out this was exactly the problem. The size of the gates and the enormous length of the city wall made it impossible to defend Nineveh effectively. That is hubris and nemesis, overreach, being spread too thin, and then being conquered. This is what happens to Assyria. This is what happens to Babylon. This is what happens to Rome. And in the wake of all of this, we are able to see the futility of human beings who raise themselves up beyond their proper state, who raise themselves up as kings, set themselves against God, set themselves over people. It's a violation of the creation mandate that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, that we are supposed to be regents under God's care to spread his glory, not our glory, across the face of the earth. And when you step out of that, it will work for a little bit. But when you live for yourself, it will always bring bring upon you the nemesis that comes to answer hubris. That is so true, Cole. That's a powerful lesson through the whole Bible and through all of history. There's a phrase that Nahum repeats more than once as he's speaking. God is speaking to uh, Assyria in this case, but I would argue God is saying this to all pride uh, throughout time. He says, behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts. Probably the scariest words that could be said. Behold, I am against you. And we will see this over and over again. You'll see it into the New Testament with Herod, uh, you know, calling himself a god and then being struck down. I mean, over again, you'll see this this pride and hubris in the, uh, the failure to acknowledge God for who he is. 
Well, probably for me, one of the great takeaways is a little more obvious. I think that's a powerful lesson. But this, once again, just reinforces the historicity of the Bible and the idea that the Bible is happening in the midst of real history. And now that you know more about the empire of Assyria and you see all these touch points with the Bible, you really do see God working through the Israelites to literally affect the whole course of histories. God himself is influencing the movement of empires throughout time. And in his sovereignty is architecting the plan of redemption throughout history. Now, I want to go back on that point to the very end of the Assyrian Empire. As we describe Pharaoh Necho and the last king of Assyria, whose name is Asher Ubalat II. If you remember, we <laughs> talked at the very beginning, the king that made Assyria into an empire and the king who lived to see the end of the empire, Asher Ubalat II are in a city named Carchemish. And as the Babylonian armies are approaching Carchemish, Nabopolassar, who is the king of Babylon at this point, gets sick. He goes back to Babylon. His army conquers Carchemish. They go down through Judah. They're pushing back the Egyptians. And they're under the command of a young general, the son of the king, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar, who is going to be a major player in Babylon and in our story. And as they go through the area of Judea in the year 605, they make Judah into a tribute kingdom, and they take captives from the city of Jerusalem, among whom are four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we would know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And on his way back to claim the kingdom after his father dies, Nebuchadnezzar takes these four men to go back to Babylon to be crowned king of the world and to bring in the reign of the Babylonian Empire, which is where we'll pick up our story next time. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.